Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you all. I want to give a really special welcome to our Burlington and Fort Madison campuses today. Welcome in here uh, with us in Danville. Uh, it's great to have the opportunity today, isn't it, to be able to uh, worship our res- resurrected Lord, our risen Lord, um, all across Southeast Iowa. So uh, we're one church in three locations, but we're all about one thing, and that one thing is Jesus. Uh, and we're here to celebrate Jesus big time today. So why, why don't we just do that, all right? Why don't we celebrate here this morning? Uh, and I have to ask you something as we, we get going here. Did, uh, did you enjoy the video, the kids' video that we showed uh, at the beginning? Yeah. So uh, if, if you did, uh, let's take a moment really to, to appropriately thank uh, not only our kids but our videographers this morning for their great work that they did. Let's celebrate that as well. All right? Yeah. Now, I actually have to tell you that when I first saw the video, um, I thought it was great, but I actually thought it was a little too great. And that was a little too great because I was kind of worried about having to follow up on that. I mean, who really wants to follow that, right? I mean, how, how do you really uh, top that? And uh, I really thought that, you know, this is going to kind of make me somewhat irrelevant, um, which I know some of you think that that's the case all the time. Uh, but uh, that being said, all joking aside, uh, we really here at Harmony do not believe that you can talk about the cross and the resurrection too much. It's just not possible to do that, particularly to celebrate it. Uh, And so I just want to take a few moments uh, here today to further explore these truths with you. And we're going to do so this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in the chair or the pew in front of you or or close to you at least. It's blackbound. Grab that. Uh, Turn to page 766. Uh, You'll find Ephesians 4 there. Um, And by the way, if if you need a Bible or you want a Bible, uh, feel free to take that home with you as our Easter gift to you uh, today. Now, uh, if you're a visitor uh, this morning, uh, first of all, we're really thankful that you're here. Uh, But uh, you probably don't know that uh, over the last three months, uh, we've been in this series from Ephesians that we've entitled A Gospel Life. A Gospel Life. And we've given the series this title uh, because in this letter, Paul really clearly lays out that when we truly understand and believe the gospel, that it results in a radically changed life. And so we're really clear, we're all on the same page this morning, when we talk about the gospel here at Harmony, what we're talking about uh, is the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on a Roman cross for our sins in our place and rose again three days later so that through faith in him, we can have a new life. That's what the gospel is. And what we're going to see today and what we've been seeing all throughout Ephesians is that when we really grab hold of this and it takes root in our heart, um, it turns our life um, upside down. Or better said, it turns our life right side up. Now, the idea of how the gospel produces this change is particularly prominent in our passage today, which is going to be verses 17 through 24 of Ephesians 4. And I just want to say this. um, If you've come today and you're looking for change, uh, you're looking for something new, uh, you recognize there's something missing in your life, then you've come to the right place today because we're going to see how that happens very, very clearly in these eight verses. So follow along with me now as we read. Picking up in verse 17, Paul says this. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
in the futility of their minds. We're going to pause here for a second so that I can clarify two words in this verse. The first one is walk. When Paul says walk, he means live. And then by Gentiles, he's referring to non-Christians or unbelievers. Paul wants us as believers to no longer live as unbelievers because Unbelievers live in the futility of their minds. Picking up uh, in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus... To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, Paul begins this section of his letter by challenging us, us believers, to no longer live like we did when we were unbelievers, Paul's word here um, in verse 17 about, about walking uh, reminds me of Johnny Cash's first number one song. You know what Johnny Cash's first number one song was? It was, I Walk the Line. Yeah, many of you knew it, all right? So reportedly, Cash wrote this um, song, or at least part of this song, backstage after getting married. And he wrote it uh, as a sign of uh, his devotion to his Wife, and, and I think most of us know how the song goes, right? Should we sing it together this morning? I thought about wearing all black today. You guys know how I like black, but I uh, can't do that on Easter. Uh, but we could sing this. In fact, some of you could sing this song better than you actually just sang the other songs that we sang, all right? But, but you know how it goes, right? Because you're mine, I walk the line. And that's kind of what Paul is telling us here. Because Jesus is ours, we should walk the line. Or better said, because we are his, we should walk the line. We should live in a way that shows our devotion to him. Let me state it a little bit more forcefully, all right? The word um, in verse 17 for, for testify, actually it means to insist. Paul's insisting that we walk the line. He's demanding that we no longer live like we did before we came to know Jesus. That said, though, it's important to realize that Paul's actually not saying this. Jesus is. Notice that he says, I testify in the Lord, which means that these are actually Jesus' words. Believers, here, you need to hear today on Easter Sunday morning that Jesus insists. He demands that you no longer live like you used to before you came to know him. That you need to walk the line. You need to show your devotion to him. Now, in a minute, we're going to look a little more closely at why we should no longer live like unbelievers. But before we do, uh, we need to take some time uh, just to walk through Paul's, what we might call graphic, or shall I say withering, description on the unbelieving life, particularly in verses 17 through 19. Uh, you'll note that Paul uses 10 words or phrases to describe the unbelieving life. Here are those words or phrases. He says the unbelieving life is meaningless. That's, that's what futile means. Dark, alienated, ignorant, Hard-hearted, callous, sensual, greedy, impure, corrupt. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And we're not going to walk through all ten of these this morning, but, but here's what I want to do. I want to give kind of an overview, a, a big picture or an outline of how the 
unbelieving life spirals downward, all right? There's an outline the guy by the name of John Stott put together for these 10 things, and I'm just going to walk through this with you uh, rather quickly. First of all, all right, it begins with hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness. This is really the central issue of the unbelieving life. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that the truth about God is evident to everyone, and yet people respond to this truth in one of two ways, all right? Believers see the truth, okay? They, they see the truth about God, that God reveals of himself in nature, in creation, in the world. Believers see it, they receive it, they accept it, they, they follow it. Unbelievers, on the other hand, uh, Paul says they suppress the truth, and in their hard-heartedness, they want absolutely nothing to do with it. Unbelievers harden their heart against the truth. And actually what's in view here with this word hard-heartedness is that they, they continue. There's a gradual, over time, hardening of the heart. Now, I pray that this is not true of anyone here today. You see, we're hearing the truth of God's word. We, we've sang the truth of God's word. We, we've read the truth of God's word. I'm in the midst of preaching the truth of God's word. So God is speaking to every person today, and I'm hoping that there is no one within my hearing this morning, all right, that will harden their heart towards the truth that God is speaking. And I want to warn you, I want to warn you not to do so because the consequences of doing so can be absolutely dire. You see, if you harden your heart and you continue to harden your heart, you might find that there comes a time where your heart is too hardened to ever come back. That's a warning I think we all need to heed this morning. So the downward spiral of the unbelieving life begins with hard-heartedness, but of course it doesn't end there. Hard-heartedness inevitably leads to blindness, to an inability to see the truth for what it is. In verse 18, uh, Paul says that unbelievers are ignorant. Now, th that doesn't mean that they don't know anything. In fact, many unbelievers know lots of things. It just means that they can't see things as they really, truly are. That They can't perceive what's actually going on. Let me give you a great example of this, all right? Uh, take a religion professor at the University of Iowa. Um, or if you prefer, uh, you and I or Iowa State, doesn't matter, all right? There'll be religion professors at all of these universities, at every major university, who, who know, they know all of the facts of the Bible. They know all the stories. They can tell you all of the things that, that Jesus did in particular, all right? And, and they'll say things like, you know, he's a, he's a good man. Uh, he was a great prophet. We, we really love that Sermon on the Mount, the, the ethic there in the Sermon on the Mount. The problem is, is that they actually don't believe, they can't see, they can't grab hold of the fact of, of who he truly is, that, that he's just not a good man and a prophet, but he is the son of God come in human flesh to, to, to redeem us from our sins. They can't see who he is, they are blind to the truth. By the way, the reason that they're blind to the truth is because, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can tell today whether or not you're a believer by how you respond to Jesus. Probably can even get a really good test this morning as to what your heart is doing. Is your heart rejoicing over the reality and the truth of Easter, of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive? Are you kind of dead and numb to it? Because if you're dead and numb to it, that probably means that when you see Jesus, you can't see how glorious and marvelous and beautiful God is. You just kind of say, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But you see, real believers, true believers, they see Jesus and they say, that's God come in the flesh. 
That's God right here coming to die for our sins. I have life through him. Unbelievers can't see that. They're blind to it. The God of the world in their hard-heartedness has blinded them to the truth. And it's in this blindness that leads to the ultimate problem of the unbelieving life, and that's deadness. You will note in verse 18 that Paul says unbelievers are alienated from the life of God. That means they're separated from him. They're separated from life. They have no life. Note here, friends, as Jesus tells us in John 17, to, to know God is to know life, but to not know him means to not have life. So you can think about it this way. Unbelievers are, are literally the, the walking dead. They, they, they look alive. They look like they have knowledge. They look like they have understanding. But in reality, they, they are dead. They're completely dead on the inside. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we all come into this world dead in our transgressions and sin. And we need God to be able to open our eyes so that we can respond to the truth and become alive. Finally, uh, the downward spiral of the unbelieving life ends in recklessness. Recklessness. This is best illustrated by the word sensuality in verse 19, a word that points to the inability to be satisfied. The unbelieving life, this is the best description, right? The unbelieving life is one in which just a little bit more is actually never enough. There's no true joy. There's no true satisfaction. There's no true really meaning or fulfillment. Let me give you a great example of this, all right? Um, back in the, the, the later part of the 18th century and early part of the 19th century, actually it was the later part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, uh, there was a man by the name of John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller. If you go uh, online today, later this afternoon, not right now, but go to Wikipedia, look him up, uh, you will find that John D. Rockefeller was the wealthiest American in history. Uh, his net worth at one point was over $330 billion dollars. All right, so, so this is a guy uh, for whom, like, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, they were just like chump change, okay? They were living below the poverty line uh, compared to this guy, all right? And, and he actually is one, the second richest people, uh, richest person uh, in modern history. Rockefeller was asked one time, how much money is enough? How much is enough? Do you know how he responded? Just a little more. Just a little more. And that's the unbelieving life. It's not always played out in money. Sometimes it's played out in sex. Sometimes it's played out in, in career. Sometimes it's played out in just all kinds of material possessions. But the unbelieving life is one in which there is no ultimate fulfillment or satisfaction. And so there's a continual desire for more and more and more. And that's why Paul says that the unbelieving life is ultimately one that is futile. It is meaningless. The unbelieving life at the end of the day has no meaning to it because meaning is only found in a relationship to your creator, which means in a relationship with the God who made you. So let's take a moment here, uh, all right, to do some early application. First, uh, if you're a believer here today, uh, you should be really thankful that what Paul says of unbelievers is no longer true for you. Okay, so, so get this. All of those things, if you're a believer, all of those things used to be true for you, but they're not true any longer. You say amen to that? All right, like, so you no longer have a heart of stone. You now have a heart of flesh, one that God has given you. You're, you're no longer blind. Now you can see. You're no longer dead. Now you're alive. You're no longer living a meaningless life. You're living a life where you can actually find 
true ultimate joy and satisfaction. This morning, as part of my devotional time, I read Psalm 16 where David says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Every single believer can experience that. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels comes from John 16. John 16, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for Good Friday, for his death, for the cross. And he tells them that that when I die, when I'm crucified, uh, the world's going to rejoice. They're going to have a party. And and you're going to mourn. You're going to mourn. But then I'm going to come back from the dead, and you're going to be the ones rejoicing. And then he says this, and no one will be able to take your joy away from you. Just think about the difference that the, the uh, disciples must have experienced between Saturday and Sunday. Those two different days for them. On Saturday, they think their world has come to an end. And then on Sunday morning, Jesus rises from the dead and everything changed. Do you realize, friends, that everything has changed because of today? Absolutely everything. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. It's all different because of what Jesus has done. That joy that the disciples had Because Jesus came back from the dead is the same joy that we can and really we should have today. Now, on the other hand, uh, if you're not a believer, all right, and I know that we have some unbelievers here today. We're glad that you're here. Uh, But I realize that you might be really offended uh, right now. Uh, I know it's offensive to hear uh, things like your your life has no meaning. Uh, And yet, I I hope that you won't hear uh, these words as coming from me uh, or even from the Apostle Paul but from the very lips of God himself. You need to recognize that, that, friends, this is how God sees you. And because this is how God sees you, this is how you really, truly are. And, and if you're like, well, I really don't see it that way, do you know why you don't see it that way? Because you're blind. All right? Because you're blind and you need to be able to see. And here's the great, here's the great wonderful news. Although all of those things were true for you when you came in today, they do not have to be true for you when you leave today. All of those things that we just talked about in verses 17 through 19, they can all be in your rearview mirror on your way home today. All right? You can, you can have new life. Your eyes can be open so that you can see. You, you can have a soft heart instead of a hard heart. And, and best of all, you can have life that is full and rich with meaning. How does this happen? Well, that's where the rest of our text comes into play. Let's take a look at verse 20. Notice what Paul says there. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. Now, you will note that this, this is the, the most important verse in our text. This is the key verse in our text. One of the reasons that we know that is because there's an exclamation point at the end of the verse. And so uh, I'm not very good at uh, uh, being intense, okay? So I, I'm kind of normally just kind of a laid-back guy and not all that intense. So you're laughing because you know that's a, that's a joke, all right? So, so it's, it's kind of hard, though, uh, somewhat, uh, for me to just kind of uh, show you or illustrate for you how intense and emphatic Paul is trying to be here. So I was just thinking about what's a good person, somebody I can point you to. Uh, think about Iowa men's basketball coach Fran McCaffrey, all right, uh, when he uh, disagrees with an official. He thinks an official has made a really bad call. You know what I'm talking about here? All right, so, so he gets upset, his face gets really red, he starts stamping his feet, right? He's getting angry, he looks like he's about to have a brain aneurysm. That's actually not what's going on here, okay? Uh, but uh, that's not the best of picture uh, because Paul's not actually angry, although he is being 
really, really intense. He's being really, really intense, really, really emphatic because he has a really important point that he's trying to get across. And he's saying to these Ephesian believers, don't live like you used to live when you were an unbeliever because you have learned Christ. And that, what, what that means is that you've come to know Jesus. You've come into a relationship with him. Really what it means is to be saved. He's saying, don't live like you did before you were saved because those are all the things that you were saved from. When you came to know Christ, you were saved from all of those things in verses 17 through 19. Here's something that's really, really important. It's really important that we understand why living like an unbeliever is incongruent with being saved. All right? Living like an unbeliever is incongruent with living like an unbeliever because you become a believer, because you've been saved from all of those things. And it's really important for us to understand why that is the case. And that's what Paul goes on to show us in verses 22 through 24. In these verses, he shows us that there are three things that were happened when we were saved. In verse 22, he says that that was repentance. In verse 24, it's recreation. And in verse 23, it's renewal. So repentance, recreation, renewal. These three things all happened when you were saved. And that's why, all right, living like an unbeliever is incongruent with coming to know Jesus. Let's talk about each of these three things. In verse 22, uh, you will note that Paul says that when we were saved, we put off our old self or our old life. In other words, we repented of our sins. We came to the place where we saw our old life for what it was, and we decided that we didn't want that life anymore. I want to ask you here this morning, have you had a, a moment, have you had a time where you have looked at your life and you have said, I don't want this life anymore. I don't want this life anymore. I want a new life. I want to turn from that life. I want to put that life off. That, that's what it means to be saved. It means to come to a place where you recognize that, that your old life ain't getting it done, it ain't going to get it done, and you need a brand new life. The imagery that Paul uses here I think is really helpful. He uses the imagery of clothes, right? Putting off. We'll talk about the putting on in a moment, putting off. Just like all of us when we got up this morning, all right, and, and we didn't go to Walmart, so we stayed in our pajamas, all right. We, we got out, all right. Uh, we, we, we actually got up, we put our old dirty clothes off, uh, and we said, we're done with those. That's what Paul says happens when we are saved. When we learn Christ, we determine that we need to put off our old life. However, not only do we put off our old life, but we were also given a new one. In verse 24, Paul says that when we came to Christ, we put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we took off our old dirty clothes and we put on new clean ones. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This old here is that old, dirty, messed up, sinful life. And the new here is the new life that we experience in Christ. A new life marked by true righteousness and holiness. I want to be really clear how all of this happens, okay? So, so if, if you're a believer here, you, you following? You tracking with me? You tracking with Paul? To be a believer means that you have put off your old life and you have put on the new life. But how exactly 
does that happen? If I could just say this to you today, uh, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, this is absolutely crucial. There are few verses more important for understanding what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a believer, than the verse we're going to look at now from Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. So, so give me your attention here, all right? Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, let me explain to you what Paul's talking about here. Don't get confused by the baptism here. He's not actually talking about physical baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism. He's talking about being saved. So here's what happens when we're saved. When we're saved, all right, we place our faith in what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection. So that, so that when we believe, God unites us with Jesus so that when Jesus died on that cross... God considers that we died with him. We died to our old way of life. And then three days later, when Jesus came out of the grave, God considers that we came out of the grave with him and we came out with a brand new stinking life. A a brand new life that is one of true righteousness. I'm not sure you're getting this this morning. Okay? Listen, I don't have much to do after this, so we can hang out here. I know all of you do, so you're like, hurry up. But, but you, you have to understand this, friends. You, you must understand this. You must understand that when you place your faith in Jesus, what happens is that that old dead life is gone. And you are raised to newness of life. A new life that is marked by true righteousness and holiness. Church history tells us that early Christians um, were baptized in white robes. So when an early Christian was baptized, uh, they would take off their their old clothes. They would put on a brand new white robe to symbolize that they were speaking and that they were declaring that that old life was dead and gone and their new life of holiness and purity had begun. And my friends, this right here is what makes Easter so wonderful. This is why this day is the greatest day of all. Easter means that we're no longer in bondage to a hard-hearted, blind, dead, reckless life. But through faith in Jesus, we are righteous and holy. We're right with God and we're holy before him. So I want to ask you this morning, believer, uh, did you realize that God no longer sees you in relation to your sin? Did you know that today? God, God doesn't see you in relation to your sin. He, he no longer sees you as described in verses 17 through 19. I, I want to make it really, really clear. You might look at that description and you might say, that, that's not me, that wasn't me. And I just want to tell you today, uh, on the authority of, of God's word, it was you. It, it might still be you, okay, if you're an unbeliever. But if you were believe, it was you at one point. That, that was the case for you. That's how God saw you. That's not how he sees you anymore. In fact, God sees you as if none of those things were actually ever true of you. Did, did you get that? God sees you right now. And, and, and you might think about your past. And you might say, yeah, I was a mess. And God says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what, what you're talking about. Because once we place our faith in Jesus... Okay, Uh, once we're placing our faith in Jesus, our sins are gone. They're cast into the deepest sea. As far as the east is from the west, okay, he removes them from us and he remembers them no more. They're gone forever. He sees you only 
as truly righteous and truly holy before him. Today, friends, because Jesus Christ is alive, you are perfect in God's sight. You are absolutely, completely perfect in his sight. Now that said, don't miss the fact that this is why we should walk the line. This is why we should strive to be righteous and holy. We should strive to live out our new life because that's how God sees us. In other words, we should strive to be what we are. We're righteous and holy, and so we should strive to be righteous and holy. So let me point out to you here that there are two ways to approach God. Right? There's two ways to think about this. All right? And in general, religion will tell you that in order to be accepted by God, you have to try to be righteous and holy. And if you're righteous and holy enough, then God will accept you. That's not true. That's not how it works. The gospel tells us that God accepts us as we are, and then he makes us righteous and holy. And therefore, since we are righteous and holy, we should strive to live like that is the case. We should strive to be what we are. Y'all getting this right here? All right? So, so a lot of us think that we've got to work, and we've got to give a, a lot of effort, and we've got to try to be good people, and if we can just be good enough and do enough things, then eventually we'll make it, and God will have mercy on us, and he'll allow us into heaven. That's not how it works. Here's what God does. God says, you believe on my son, I'll give you eternal life, I'll make you righteous and holy. And now, since that is the case, out of love for what I have done for you, strive to be what I have made you. And really the question for us today is, I'm getting a little off track here because this is so important, but really the question is, is that am I striving to be good, okay, because I think that I have to be good in order to earn God's favor, or do I believe that I have God's favor, and because I have it, now I'm going to strive out of love for what he has done for me to be what he has made me to be? That's the question. Now, finally, when we come to know Jesus, we enter into a process of renewal. So there was repentance. There was recreation. We were recreated in his image. But now we talk about renewal. This means renewal has to do with the fact that the moment that we were saved... God began to change us. He began to transform our lives. In Colossians 3.10, Paul says this. He says, we have, believers, have put on the new self, which is being renewed, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So here's how it works in the Christian life, all right? As believers, God is in the process of changing us. He's changing the way that we think. He's changing the way that we feel. He's changing the way that we act. He's even, even changing the way that we want. He's changing us so that we think, act, feel, and want like he does. Let me tell you about St. Augustine. All right, St. Augustine. If you haven't heard of, of St. Augustine, um, I'm sorry for that. Um, but um, you need to understand that this, this guy, he, he lived about 1,600 years ago uh, and has been one of the most influential people in the, in the history of the church. In fact, uh, we're here today uh, largely in part due to him. He, he was just instrumental in the development of Western Christianity. However, uh, before Augustine became a believer... Before he became a Christian, uh, he was an incredibly promiscuous man. Uh, he was a man who this word sensual, okay, just, he, he was just the poster boy for sensuality. He, he was the poster child for, for being greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
That was his life before coming to faith in Jesus. There's a story told, though, of how several years after he came to faith, he ran into one of his former lovers. And in running into this woman, she did everything that she could do to try to get him to go to bed with her again. She was unsuccessful. And as they were parting ways, she made one final effort. And here's what she said to him. She said, but Augustine, it is I. It is I. He responded to her, it might be you, but it is not I. It is not I. He had been changed. He had been renewed. He had been transformed. And the point that Paul is making here in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the same thing is happening to Every other believer in Jesus Christ as well. We are all in the process of changing. We are all in the process of growing. We are all in the process of being renewed and transformed into the image of Jesus until the day either that we go home or Jesus comes back where that transformation will be complete and we will be like Jesus forever. That's the hope. That's the future that we have awaiting us. So here's what this means. It means... That we need, listen to this, it means that as believers, we need to work with what God is doing in us, not against it. You tracking with me here? We, we need to work along with what God is doing. He is working in our lives. We need to work along with him. Jesus died and rose again so that we might be renewed, so that we might be changed. And therefore, the calling on our lives, in many ways, the goal of our lives is to see renewal happen as much as we possibly can. This is, a, this is a primary theme of the New Testament letters. We see the apostles, especially Paul and Peter, going back to this over and over again. In fact, here's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. After 11 chapters of digging in to the truths of the gospel, he says this, By the mercies of God, then, you need to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Christians, believers, here today on Easter Sunday morning, I want to point out to you that the resurrection means, okay, that, that you are in the process of renewal and that you need to completely and totally and fully lay down your life and say, I'm going to do whatever I can do, whatever I need to do to be as much like Jesus as I possibly can. That's the call on our lives here on Easter Sunday morning. So in closing, there are two responses that I want to call believers here today. I'll do these really quickly. Two, two responses that we should have today. The first is that we should rejoice. We should rejoice big time today. We should rejoice that our old life is gone and that our new life has come. We're going to give you a chance here in just a moment to respond by singing. And you ought to sing with a heart full of the fact that you are alive. In fact, you could get a chance today to show whether you are alive or not. Did you know that? You can show whether you're alive or not by how you respond to the truths of today. As believers, we should rejoice. And I recognize that we got lots of issues, and we got lots of problems, and we got lots of struggles in here today. But I just want to tell you, friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your biggest problem by a long shot is gone. You at one point were dead, you are alive, and you're going to be alive forever. And what's better, you're not going to just be alive like you are right now with all your aches and pains and problems and issues. All of that is going away. All of that is going to be removed. You are going to live a perfect life in a perfect place with perfect 
people, and you are going to do so forever. And so no matter what you've got going on today, here's what you can do. You can rejoice. Amen? Second, right? not only should you rejoice, though, but we should commit to walk the line. We should all say, because this new life is mine, I'm going to walk the line. Or perhaps better said, because Jesus is mine, I'm going to walk the line. I'm going to give my all in living for him. That said, let me say a final word to those who aren't believers. At least not yet. At least not yet. I hope that that's actually changing today all across southeast Iowa. You know, I I know that uh, today uh, in Fort Madison and Burlington and Danville, there have been dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people who have come through the doors of our church who, who, who were dead when they came in. I've been praying, our leaders have been praying, many of you have been praying for weeks now that that would change. And that God would be calling people to life, that he would give them eyes to see, that he would give them new spiritual life. But let me just say this to you, if you're here today and you're stuck, maybe you're stuck in your old way of life. And you're like, I I don't want to be stuck, but I just don't know how to get unstuck. I want to change, but I just don't know how to change. Here's the problem. You've probably been trying to change on your own and get unstuck on your own, and you can't. You just can't do it on your own. But let me tell you, Jesus can do it for you, and he wants to do it for you. That offer you need to hear loud and clear today. You actually can change. You can experience transformation. You can have a new life, and here's how you have it. You have it by right now, today, here in this place, placing your faith for the first time truly in Jesus. But by grabbing hold of the fact that he really is the Son of God, that he really did die in uh, in your place, that he really did come back to life again, and that through faith in him, you can be given a brand new life. If you will do this today, friends, if you will trust in Jesus, your old life will be gone, your new life will begin, and that you will look at all of that old stuff in your rearview mirror, and it will only be increasing glory for the rest of your life and into eternity. Now, I want to make it really clear here, really, really clear that this is a choice that you have to make on your own. It's a choice you have to make on your own. We have lots of people who came with family today, with parents and with grandparents. And I just want to tell you, you can't ride your parents' or your grandparents' coattails into heaven. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Did you know that? God has no grandchildren. He only has children or they they aren't children at all. We're either his children or, or, or we're not. And so we have to make the choice on our own. I read a story recently about a little girl uh, who went to the doctor to get her vaccinations. Uh, And as she was about to get the vaccination, the nurse asked her, she said, sweetie, uh, which arm do you want the shot in? The little girl responded, I want it in mama's arm. (laughs) But, but, But here's the thing. Mama can't take your shot for you. And mama can't choose for you. You have to choose on your own. And the choice that you make of whether to believe in Jesus Christ will absolutely determine everything in this life and in the life to come. I know that I have been intense today. I know that perhaps some of the things that I've said have been offensive to you. I've not said them because I want to be judgmental or because I look down on you. 
I do so because I know that God loves you and that he wants none of you to perish but all to have eternal life. And if you're going to have the eternal life, you have to know the truth. Because it's as the truth is spoken that eyes are open and that we actually see the reality of how things are. Some of you right now, even as I speak, are, are starting to harden your heart against this. Maybe you're already there. Don't do it. Don't do it. Believe in Jesus Christ today and be saved. I'm going to pray here in a moment. I want to invite you. You don't have to say the right words. There are no right words. There are no magic words. All it is is saying, I want my old life to be gone, and when I want my new life to begin. And if you say that, and if you believe it, it will happen today. I want to invite you to pray that prayer. And I want to invite you to consider taking the card that was in your handout when you came in and filling it out and letting us know the choice that you have made today. Or maybe you want to fill it out and let us know some more questions that you have about what we've talked about today. Maybe you have a prayer request. Maybe you've got a struggle going on in your life. We've intentionally taken the offering. We're going to take it after the message today to give you an opportunity to respond. So fill this out. Place it in the offering plate. We would love to connect with you and to help you get started in this new life that Jesus offers today. Will you pray with me?